Welcome back to From Heaven to Eternity. In this episode, we'll be starting to work through the Book of Esther. This will probably be a two-episode standalone series. These two episodes won't fit into any larger series. Esther's just a fun book to start with and jump into. It fits nicely with one of the major theme areas of this podcast, which is to take hard or underread books of the Bible and equip people to read them. We want to empower you to make sense of the book, where it fits in the overall narrative of the Bible's singular story, and then give some interesting tidbits that are hopefully helpful. We won't be going verse by verse through the book. Instead, we'll take the first episode to present some background material, kind of set the mood, and then outline the overall story of the book. Episode 2 will dive further into the storyline, geek out on some of the nuances, and then put a bow on the themes of the book. The book is 10 chapters. And if you follow us on Facebook or read the From Hevel to Eternity blog, you'll see we have a basic one-week reading plan for the book. This plan can help focus your readings and make it easier to follow along with episode two. If you're not following, then shameless plug, you should follow us on Facebook. Also on Facebook, we have a post for submitting questions about the book of Esther. We'll be collecting those and are trying to have a bonus roundtable podcast where we can chat through some of your questions. I'm excited to start. Let's see what this book has in store. Let's start with the boring stuff, the what and the where of the book itself. What type of biblical literature is the book of Esther? It's not prophetic literature like Isaiah, and it's not poetic songs and prayers like the book of Psalms. I consider it both narrative, which describes events that actually took place, but also wisdom literature, providing insight into how God works in the world and how his people can trust him when times get hard. If you've ever read or studied through the book of Ruth or Job in the Bible, then you're familiar with the idea I'm trying to get across here. If you've never done that or studied any of those books, then this podcast will provide a great introduction to that. So where is the book of Esther located in our Bibles? Well, in the Hebrew Bible, which is called the Tanakh, it is placed in a different spot from where we find it. In the Tanakh, it's actually grouped in the writings and wisdom sections. When the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek a few hundred years before Jesus, Esther was put in the narrative history section, right after Ezra and Nehemiah, which are the other two books that focus around this time frame of history. It is in that same spot in our Christian Bibles, which makes it the 17th book in the Old Testament. The book of Esther tells a specific story that is unfolding during the time period of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's why it is where it is in our Bibles. Esther takes place while the Israelites are starting to return from exile. If you aren't familiar with the Israelite history, after settling into the Promised Land, the nation of Israel divided into two different kingdoms. Assyria marched into the Promised Land and annihilated the northern kingdom of Israel. Big Bad Babylon then swooped in and took care of the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. But instead of wiping them off the face of the earth, Babylon opted to destroy the city of Jerusalem and then carry the remaining Israelites into captivity. They were relocated to the area of modern-day Iraq. A few generations go by, and eventually Babylon is overtaken by the Persian Empire. One of the Persian kings, King Cyrus, decides to allow Israelites to return to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple and the city walls. These rebuilding efforts are what is described in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, 
the books that run parallel to the book of Esther. In the middle of that story of exiled Israelites returning to rebuild Jerusalem is the book of Esther. It's a story about Persian higher-ups who hatch a plan to exterminate all Jewish people in the Persian Empire and all the events that God orchestrated to save his people. The Persian king, described in the book, ruled from about 486 to 464 BC, and these specific events were probably unfolding in the year around 480 BC. So this is about 500 years before Jesus died on the cross. But that's enough of the boring stuff. I promise the story itself is much more interesting. The Book of Esther reads like a reality TV show that was put in a blender with a crime drama. It is meant to be read as a suspense narrative. You are meant to be asking where God is at as each of the events unfold. God is never directly mentioned in this book, but the question I recommend you keep asking yourself is, what are the odds? Are the things in this book mere coincidence or random luck? Or is God sovereign over all of these situations, regardless of how often he is mentioned or not? Then it begs us to ask that same question about our own lives. Do I trust that God is sovereign even when I don't see him in the everyday circumstances of my life? Do I trust that God is a faithful promise keeper? characters in the book, King Ahasuerus, who most modern commentators recognize as King Xerxes. And actually, if you're reading the NIV or NLT translations, that's the name that you're going to see. He is the king of the Persian Empire. His Hebrew name, I'm going to butcher, but it's Akashvarash, and he also shows up in the books of Ezra and Daniel. Queen Vashti is the second character. She starts the book as the queen of Persia, and she stays that way for at least a couple verses before she's banished from the king's presence. Mordecai is the third character, and he's a Jew who is living in the Persian capital of Susa. He is a fourth-generation Israelite exile whose great-grandfather had been carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. The book says that he became the father of the daughter of his uncle, which just means that he became his cousin's legal guardian. Mordecai's cousin was Esther, whom the book is named after. It says that she doesn't have a mom or dad around, so she falls under Mordecai's care. The final primary character, who is also the main antagonist of the story, is Haman the Agagite. He was elevated to a position of power and is the person that a lot of the story's drama revolves around. He was most likely not a true Persian. He was probably a descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites a people who were at odds with the Israelites ever since they settled into the Promised Land. If you're curious about that, I recommend reading 1 Samuel 15, Exodus 17, and Deuteronomy 25 for a little clarity, though I think I might dive into that in episode 2 later this week. A cliff note summary of the book starts with King Ahasuerus, who is the head honcho of Persia, living in his palace in the capital city of Susa. It's referred to as a citadel, and it would have been a fortified military-type compound. Verse 1 says he controlled a lot of land. His empire extended 127 provinces, from India to Ethiopia. If you drew a map and then colored in the area he controlled, you would be coloring in portions of the Middle East, Eastern Europe, the area of Asia around India, and part of North Africa. 
basically he's got little army pieces all over the risk board game map and you don't want to mess with him he throws these crazy celebrations that last months which are followed up by feasts that last for days the celebration at the start of the book lasts for 180 days and was rounded out by a seven-day feast these were huge and extravagant banquets in the palace garden they had white cotton curtains and violet hangings, marble pillars, golden serving dishes, and they kept the royal wine flowing. Picture an image of a great Gatsby-style party just in ancient Persia. Enter Queen Vashti. Esther one says she was lovely to look at. She was beautiful, and the king liked to show her off. During one of these feasts, she refuses to come before the king. Specifically, she refuses the king's request to be beautiful and flaunt it in front of all the king's party guests. To keep the TV theme going, think Real Housewives of Susa meets this like really controlling husband king. Her refusal takes her out of the king's good graces. Back then, that meant she was ostracized from the palace. What's really funny is that at the end of chapter one, it actually says that the king and his men concluded that by refusing him, Vashti had actually done wrong against all the Persian people because now other Persian women might see her as a role model and rebel against their husbands too. So they send out a royal decree that all the wives will give their husbands honor, both great and small. I guess if the king couldn't control his wife, he was going to use his power to try to control all of the other wives, and he would give this proclamation to them all. I don't think that's how it works, but he was a king, and I'm just a dude, so we'll move on from that. Chapter 2 has the king wanting a new queen, so he takes out an ad on eHarmony. Not really, but his servants do send out a classified ad throughout the kingdom. It pretty much hit all the big-ticket superficial items. Verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2 say that this girl would have to be a beautiful young virgin who is willing to relocate to the women's house in Susa, some translations say the harem in Susa. And the final bullet point was that this woman would have to please the king. Remember, this is what got Queen Vashti in trouble. The king is basically hosting an ancient Persian version of the Bachelor TV show. That's when we get our first cut scene, where the camera finds these two Israelites, Mordecai and his cousin Esther, who he's in charge of. They already live in Susa, and Esther is described as being lovely to look at. So Esther throws her name in the hat to be queen. And we actually find out in verse 10 that Esther kept her Jewish heritage secret because of the conversation between her and Mordecai. So after this, all the girls are taken to this woman's house to undergo what the story calls this purification, this spa treatment amped up to 11. To quote the story, it says it's six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet fragrances and with preparations for beautifying women. After this, each woman gets her turn with the king, and in the end, he pins a rose on the winner. Okay, not really, but that's kind of actually how it worked. The king gets to pick his winner. Verse 17 says that Esther was taken before the king, and, quote, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she obtained favor and kindness in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So, Esther wins the Bachelor BC edition, and as is his style, the king throws another party. A great feast, and he gives giant tax breaks. Yay for everybody!
rest of the book from chapter 3 through chapter 10 is this series of 24 styled plot twists and left turns. It turns out that while Mordecai is hanging out by the palace gates every day waiting on word about Esther, he overhears this plot by some Persian officials to overthrow the king. He gets word to Esther, who tells the king, who executes the two officials responsible. Then we get introduced to Haman the Agagite, who is promoted head official over all the other Persian officials. Everywhere he went, all of the servants bowed down before him, except for Mordecai. This infuriated Haman, and he hatches a conspiracy to murder all the Israelites. He's a proud, power-hungry, goon-squad-type dude who wants to kill all the Jews because one Jewish servant didn't bow down to him. Through some coercing, he even manages to sell the king on this plot. So a decree was issued throughout the land by Haman that on a specific day, the Persians were to kill all Israelites. Naturally, the Israelites mourned and lamented this tremendously. Through Mordecai, Esther hears about this and is distraught. She's terrified to bring this up to the king, because if she speaks out of turn, she could be executed. Also, this would be revealing her true heritage, which she's been hiding up to this point. There's this dialogue at the end of chapter 4 between Esther and Mordecai, through one of Esther's attendees, that's just amazing. And it's so revealing. And it's clearly talking about God's sovereignty and his promises to save his people. But he's never mentioned. Chapter 4 Verses 13 through 15 say, Then Mordecai asked them return answer to Esther. Don't think of yourself that you will escape in the king's house any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent now, then relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Who knows if you haven't come to the kingdom for just such a time as this. I think Mordecai saying that if Esther doesn't act, deliverance would come from someplace else is clearly an indication of Mordecai's faith that God would fulfill his promises. And Mordecai appears to be asking a rhetorical question when he asks her, who knows if you haven't come to the kingdom for such a time as this? His comments definitely follow the comments of someone who has faith in God's faithfulness and who trusts God's sovereignty over all situations. The book just never mentions God. The same thing happens a few verses later in verse 16 with the discussion about fasting for three days. This was a Jewish observance and would have been accompanied by prayer also, but the book almost goes out of its way to avoid using the word prayer or God. The theology is definitely there, even if the vocabulary isn't. So now Esther goes before the king, even though she wasn't called for, which could go poorly for her. But it turns out that he kind of likes her, so he asked her what her request is. Instead of being super direct about the whole situation, Esther takes the political approach and requests that Haman dine with the king and queen that night. And then at the end of that first dinner, she requests the same thing for the next night. Haman completely misreads the situation. He thinks being invited back to another night is a great thing, that he's being considered the man by the king and queen. So when he gets back to his house, he talks himself up, and his wife, Zeresh, comes up with this plan for Haman to use his newly felt power to finally kill Mordecai. Haman likes the idea, and they order a gallows built to kill Mordecai. Enter another cutscene and plot twist, because around the same time, the king, quote-unquote, just so happens to be reading about the time that Mordecai 
spoiled that plot to kill the king. And the king asked his servants if anything was ever done to honor Mordecai. Turns out nothing ever was. So the king starts to think about how he could honor Mordecai. First thing the next morning, a super confident and super ambitious Haman approaches the king to ask about executing Mordecai. Before Haman could even get the question out, the king asks a hypothetical. End of chapter 6, verse 6 says, The king asked him, What shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman, who was the only guy invited to dine with the royal couple two nights in a row, is probably smiling big right now because he thinks it's him who is about to be honored. So he answers, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal clothing be brought which the king uses to wear and the horse that the king rides on, and on the head of which a royal crown is set. Let the clothing and the horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man whom the king delights to honor with them, and have him ride on horseback through the city square. Haman thinks he's getting a parade, and then the king just crushes him when he announces Mordecai is the man the king delights to honor. On top of that, the king requests Haman be the guy who has to parade Mordecai around. Needless to say, this is poor timing for Haman to ask the king about killing Mordecai. Chapter 7 is the dramatic climax of the book. It's not where the story gets wrapped up, but it's where the main conflict between Esther, Mordecai, and Haman comes to pass. At their second dinner, Esther tells the king about her heritage and of Haman's plot to mur murder her people. The king gets angry and goes for a walk out in the garden to blow off steam. When he comes back, he sees Haman on top of the couch where Esther was laying down. The details here aren't super clear about what's happening, but I'll talk about this more in the second podcast. The king then says, will he even assault the queen in front of me in the house? Then one of his servants piles on and says, king, you know, Haman had these gallows made in front of his house to hang Mordecai on. It's conveniently available for all of your executioning needs. That's a Brian paraphrase translation, by the way. So in all of its ironic glory, Haman gets put to death on what was originally built by Haman for Mordecai. I'll let you read the full book on your own, including the details of the last few chapters. But in the end, Mordecai ends up inheriting Haman's estate and is actually elevated to the number two position in Persia which just shouts parallels to Joseph in Egypt. The Israelites aren't massacred and actually end up turning the tables on any people who try to destroy them. Thomas Schreiner notes that God rules over history and he will exalt his people and destroy his enemies. What's the point of the story? Are the actions about the secret motives of political masterminds, or is the intent of the story to show God's providence clearly, even without using his name? The entire Bible is about Jesus. It's one storyline pointing to God's plan to redeem sinful man through the blood of Jesus. In order to set that stage, in order for the exiles to be able to return and the second temple period to kick off in Jerusalem and the birth of Jesus the Messiah from the Davidic line in Bethlehem, there has to be Israelites left to return. The story of Esther is showing how God intervenes in everyday life to ensure his story is playing out. 
and that his promises are fulfilled. God is never directly mentioned in this book, but he is sovereign over all of the situations in the book. And it begs us to ask the question, do I trust that God is sovereign even when I don't see him in my everyday circumstances? Do I trust that God is a faithful promise keeper? God has made a path for us to be saved through his son, Jesus, who lived the perfect life we never could, died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected to the right hand of the Father, and will return again. If I can turn toward Jesus and place my faith in him, then I can recognize that he is with me through my everyday circumstances, and that I become an equal recipient in the promise of eternal life with God. In the next episode, I'll nerd out about specific words and word counts in the book. We'll also really talk to the themes of the book and how it is woven into the entire biblical narrative. From echoes of Genesis 3.15 to Jewish holidays, character parallels with Mordecai, the contrast between the king of Persia and God throughout the book, the perseverance of the Messiah's family tree, and how Jesus was the righteous man who didn't deserve death, but who died suspended on his wooden post at Calvary to save all people who follow him. Please tune in to episode 2, scheduled for later this week. All Bible verses in this episode were from the World English Bible Translation, which is in the public domain. The Thomas Schreiner quote was from the book The King and His Beauty, which I highly recommend. If you heard a randomly ringing bell in the background, I apologize. My cat was on the loose. You aren't crazy. Um, Until next time, I love y'all.